It's three weeks until America decides who its next president is going to be. Trump's COVID diagnosis has sent the campaign into disarray, so where do we stand? On today's show, we speak to Catherine Zappone on the ground stateside about the VP debate, and we get the lowdown from the key swing state of Florida. Our panel digests the week's news from the campaign trail, and Shane Hannon once again takes us inside the White House. Plus, could the election end up mirroring the contested results of Gore v. Bush 20 years ago? The Donald versus Uncle Joe. The reality TV star versus the DC veteran. Red versus blue. You are listening to News Talk, and this is Race to the White House. He was only a good vice president because he understood how to kiss Barack Obama's ass. I'm ready to give him a new nickname, the former President Trump. We've done more in this administration than any president in the history of our country. We're in a battle for the soul of the nation. Hello, everyone. I'm Simon Tierney, and you're listening to Race to the White House, News Talk's weekly coverage of the U.S. presidential election. Do get in contact with us via Twitter. You can find us at News Talk FM or at Tierney Simon. Right, let's drill down to some of the key aspects of the campaign this week. Joining me on the panel is Dr. Graham Finlay from the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD and Greg Swenson, former chair of Republicans Overseas UK. Thank you both for joining us. There was one particular quip from the president that piqued my interest above all the other events this week. Have a listen to this clip. I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. This was a blessing in disguise. I caught it. I heard about this drug. I said, let me take it. It was my suggestion. I said, let me take it. And it was incredible the way it worked. Incredible. And I think if I didn't catch it, we'd be looking at that like a number of other drugs. But it really did a fantastic job. I want to get for you what I got, and I'm going to make it free. You're not going to pay for it. I'm interested in discussing the role that religion and God play in the election. Trump has always courted the evangelical vote, while Biden, of course, is a lifelong practicing Catholic. In fact, if he becomes president, he will just be the second Catholic to win the office after JFK. Let me go to you first, Greg. Do people in the States, do they see Trump's invoking of God as genuine or cynical? I think I think it's pretty common for for leaders and presidents of both parties to invoke God. I, I, that's not you know terribly unusual in, in the U.S. Um, even in in some of the ceremonial stuff, like you know like at the inaugura- inauguration in 2016, I was watching it here in London, and and the the, uh, the Europeans in the room were were a little bit surprised about how often you know there's references to to God in it. So it it doesn't surprise me. And, you know, you brought up a good point that you know, he has courted the evangelical vote. Um, it's, it's not always, you know, as, as you would expect. You know, the Rick Santorum, for example, um, was Catholic back in, I think it was 2012 or 2008, um, probably 12. And, you know, he did really well with the evangelical vote, not necessarily with the Catholic vote. So um, it, there, it's a funny demographic, um, and I think that they, they obviously – in 2016, they realized, okay, the, this president isn't going to be necessarily my spiritual advisor, but but he he lines up with what's important to us, and I think that's um, that's that's healthy for them to to not have a litmus test, 
um, you know, they're going to vote with their own interests. And I think that, you know, he's, if he makes an appeal to them, that's great. That's, that's not unusual okay. in, in, in American politics for, for presidents to do that. Um, Graham, in a European context, we're used to a much more secular form of rhetoric uh, from our governments. Why is religion such a big part of American political discourse? Well, it's a really long history. I mean, going back to the Puritans and just generally the kind of religion which uh, has informed the American sort of experiment. And then a lot of people from uh, northern, from the northern parts of Ireland, from Ulster, went over and went into the backwoods. And um, their religion of a certain kind of Protestantism went under some mutations back there. And what you get is a really strong strain of radical Protestantism, which has a lot of uh, I suppose, principles which might be conducive to even Donald Trump, who has no real visible engagement with religion in his daily life, in his knowledge of the Bible, in his way of living his life, and, and until recently, in his, his sort of a, a references to God. But, you know, first of all, there's the idea of you know, predestination in that some people are just elect, and so, you know, no matter what, you know. And then there's the idea, I think, of the Reformed sinner, where people can make a radical change in their lives and be born again, which is a really powerful narrative in American uh, life. And then finally, there's the idea of providence, that God works in mysterious mm-hmm. ways. And, you know, if this, he's going to do his will through a, uh, a man, as Pete Buttigieg has been pointing out recently, was caught with a porn star, sometimes that's part of God's larger plan. So while evangelicals might be uncomfortable with the way that Trump invokes God, which is very different from the largely believing people who've done presidents who've done so in the past, like that that clip really was, you know, sort of slightly odd in some of his other statements about how Biden wants to hurt God. Well, I don't think God can be hurt by by Joe Biden. So but while they may be uncomfortable with all that, they really do see Donald Trump as getting them what they want, which is very religious conservative judges on the Supreme Court and in all sorts of other federal courts. Yeah. Um, Greg, um, do you think that's a fair characterization of the president's religious identity? Yes, I, I think that's pretty fair. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that, you know, he's, he didn't have a, a, you know, real grounding in religion. But I think you could say the same thing about his, his governing philosophy. I mean, he was not a movement conservative or a traditional or philosophical conservative. But what he did, you know, quite wisely in the campaign was just made some commitments in the campaign to, you know, for example, with the with the um, judiciary appoint, appointments, not just the Supreme Court, but all the federal benches. You know, he made a commitment to use um, the federal society list, and and that was, he was the first candidate to do that to, to state up front, and that that really worked with evangelicals. Actually, Greg, yeah, just, that, yeah. that that brings me on to a point. Um, my understanding is that the evangelical vote is un- is highly unlikely to vote for Biden because even though he's a Catholic, because of his position on abortion, is that correct? Yes, I, I would I would agree with that. I can't I can't say I I have any statistics to prove it. Sure, but, but I think conceptually, you know, absolutely that is true. And the other thing is the is the judiciary. You know that you know twenty five percent of the people that voted for Trump in sixteen voted for him on one and only one issue. Unlike the rest of us who, who had, you know, who, who approved of his judicial philosophy, but that wasn't the only reason that we voted for him. Whereas, you know, 25%, which I would, would imagine was predominantly 
evangelicals would voted for him just on that. And so, yes, it's, it's important. It's, it's consistent with conservatives in general, okay. but it's especially important for evangelicals. Okay. Now, I want to have a look at the theatre of Trump, okay? This has been an incredible week for the imagery, almost movie-like, almost produced by a Hollywood studio that Trump has managed to create this week. Um, the drive-by past his supporters outside Walter Reed Medical Center, the emergence from the golden doors of the hospital, Marine One landing at sunset on the south lawn of the White House, and of course that endless salute from the first floor balcony um, of the White House. Um, Greg, Trump, he laid on the imagery very thickly this week. What was all that about? <laughs> it's very true. I guess it's very consistent with, with the president. You know, one of his flaws is he likes to make everything about him. And, and that backfired on him in 2018 with the midterms, um, or at least it backfired on, the, on a party to a certain degree. But, um, but it does work in some situations. And so I think he tried to, you know, there's no doubt that he's, he's a very optimistic and positive president and likes to, to, you know, to use these images. So, you know, I'm not sure that it worked and I'm not sure it's going to change anybody's mind or, or you know, really convince any persuadables. But, you know, it's it's part of his the way he operates. He likes that positive message. I think he was trying to take a page out of the, the Reagan playbook in 81, where he got a lot of sympathy in, and was polling very poorly at the time, you know, the beginning of his administration. And so, you know, when he was shot, it, it actually boosted his popularity. And that didn't last long, you know, even though Reagan, you know, we look back now and think how popular he was and he had a massive landslide in 1984. You know, in 1982, he was polling horribly and got crushed in the midterm. So these these moments are fleeting. And, um, you know, that's okay. I'm, I have no problem with what he did, but I don't think it really moves the needle. But Graham, um, when Trump was up there on the balcony and he was holding that salute like Tom, Cru like Tom Cruise in Top Gun um, and he's holding it and holding it and he's got the sunset and Marine One lifting off. I mean, it's kind of laughable for us over here in Europe where... Uh, we treat our politicians, um, we treat this kind of theatre making with a lot more scepticism. But are those images important to voters in the States? I think they are. I mean, celebrity politics in the United States is rampant. And it's really we're really seeing a lot of celebritification of politics. And Trump is the most obvious version of that and the greatest version of that. I mean, I actually wrote a whole article on celebrity politics. And, you know, this is Trump, the reality television star, quite literally on steroids. Uh, and he's on very heavy steroids, which lead to even more of the kind of things which celebrities tend to suffer from, like megalomania, you know, impetuosity, and so forth. But, you know, celebrities don't distinguish between their, their selves, their private life, and their brand. They don't, and um, in Trump's case, he doesn't distinguish between his brand and his governmental role, his office. And so he's put his stamp and the idea that this is all the same ball of wax, his political campaigns, his marketing campaigns, his promotion of his self-image and his brand, they're just seamless. And so why not use, you know, the balcony in the White House as a, a scene for some kind of don't cry for me Argentina photo op and, and, and lush video. Um, and we've seen this throughout the presidency. He just, you know, he uses the Rose Garden for political events. He steps over every possible boundary between the political uh, partisan 
role and the governmental role. And uh, this is just in some ways but the Graham, latest version of it. Graeme, are, are people, my, my question is, are people looking at those images and are they being inspired by them? I think, again, we, people have made up their minds about Trump. So I think the people who are inspired by them are, are the people who are already inspired by Trump. And the people who aren't inspired by Trump are just looking at that and really wondering if, you know, the steroids are affecting his judgment such as it is. And, and that, so I think it's just another daily churn thing which is going to continue to fire people's pretty much settled judgments in this election. Okay. Um, Greg, perhaps this theatre isn't working because the latest Wall Street Journal poll shows, shows Biden with a staggering 14-point lead over Trump nationally. Are we seeing some Republicans now trying to distance themselves from Trump, that he may be a lame duck? I, I don't know that yet. Um, you know, look, the polls are... You know, I think I think that one has to be exaggerated, and and there's got to be some flaws in it because nobody went, nobody's went, nobody wins by 14 points. You know, I, I don't even think Reagan did in '84. So that to me, I mean, it's not good news for sure. I mean, and I think you know people remember the, the how the polls were wrong in 2016, but they really weren't. You know, most of the polls that had Hillary winning only had her winning by a few points. I think the only one that was dramatically wrong was Wisconsin, but. In the other swing states, and you know they had Hillary winning by one or two points, and she ended up losing by half a point, and that's well within the margin of error. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I'm, I'm, of course, as a conservative, I'm worried about these numbers, and I'd rather be up, you know, two to five points than down two to five points. But the, the, the national okay. poll, I mean, it, it doesn't worry me that much because it's just, it's just not realistic. Um, Graham, just with the theatrics, I suppose one of the key messages of Trump's um, theater making is this notion of freedom, the flouting of mask guidelines, the defiance of social distancing. There was a Guardian column by Rebecca Solnit this morning and it was very illuminating because she was suggesting that the idea of individual freedom is paramount to all other concerns for Republicans, but that I suppose COVID is forcing us is forcing Americans to take collective responsibility. And that's not something that Republican voters like. Do you think this principle of freedom is at the root of Trump's sort of laissez-faire attitude to the pandemic? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, and the, a lot of his supporters interpret freedom as being able to do whatever I want with no costs, right? And, you know, maybe they're worried about the costs of the, the freedoms they're prepared to pay for. But I think you really are seeing, a, a, I mean, a colossal failure of what was an extraordinary sort of system. I mean, the U.S. had the gold standard of disease control in the Centers for Disease Control. They, the U.S. has some of the finest medical care in the world if you can afford it. And, but it doesn't cope well with the kind of thing, which is a pandemic, which requires a coherent response, which brings everybody with you. You can't defeat a pandemic and have millions of people without insurance. You can't defeat a pandemic if millions of people have lost their insurance because of the tanking economy. You can't defeat a pandemic if you're simultaneously going to court to try and take away protection for people's pre-existing conditions. And, and that's when people who can't afford it exercise their freedom not to have health insurance, not to go to the doctor, not to go to the hospital by not doing it, and the pandemic persists. And if people extend that to not taking any precautions, you have the results we see. Dr. Graham Finlay is from the School of Politics and International Relations at UCD and Greg Swenson, former chair of Republicans Overseas UK. Thank you both and I hope you'll join us again on Race to the White House.
Nice to be here. Thanks. Now, many commentators view Florida as perhaps the most important of the swing states. As the saying goes, whoever wins Florida wins the election. That was certainly the case for the Republicans in 2016, but will they repeat that success this year? Joining me now is Scott Clement, the polling director for The Washington Post. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Now, tell me, first of all, how are the polls looking? Is it as tight as was predicted in the state of Florida? Florida looks like one of the tightest uh, battleground states this year. Uh, Biden has a lead nationwide and also has modest leads in some of the other states that helped propel Trump's victory in 2016. Uh, But Florida polls have generally been much closer. uh, And it's proven a more difficult state for Democrats to flip after Trump's victory. So there's a sign that the state uh, has that Trump's support in the state is a little more sturdy. Now, I'm just looking here at the records from over the years. I mean, it really is that saying that I said that if you win Florida, you win the election. It is basically true. Over the last 30 years, like 92, Bush won it and he didn't win the election. That is the last time that that happened. 96, Clinton, 2000 and 2004, Bush, Jr., 2008 and 12, Obama and last year, uh, sorry, the last cycle, Trump. So in the last 30 years, only on one occasion has a future president not won that state. So it is very, very important, isn't it? It is. And it's. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, I mean, one, like the country, it's very politically and demographically diverse. Uh, you know, there um, the share of non-white voters nationally has been increasing in the U.S. and generally Democrats have done well among that group. Um, that's true in Florida, too. Uh, yet the Latino population in Florida is also politically diverse. Uh, there uh, is a large Cuban uh, population in Florida uh, who are citizens and, and have voted for many years and leaned Republican. Um, the other element of it is it's just large uh, with uh, uh, 29 electoral votes, which are really what matter in uh, U.S. presidential elections. Um, winning Florida is a big prize. It's really the biggest prize of the battleground states. Some of the other large states in the U.S. are somewhat less competitive. Uh, California, New York, even Texas have not been nearly as close as Florida. Some commentators are suggesting that it's more important for Trump to win Florida than it is for Biden to win Florida. Why is that? Well, part of it is the nature of Trump's victory in 2016. Um, so he, he won uh, uh, with really the margins were closest in three other states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, uh, three upper Midwest states that all voted consistently Democratic for several elections and then flipped narrowly for Trump, uh, usually by less than one or two percentage points. So those are considered the sort of tipping point states that helped uh, Trump win. If he had lost Florida, um, it would have uh, made it much more difficult for Trump to win. Um, whereas uh, looking to this year, Biden has other routes to victory if he loses Florida. For instance, if he flips um, several of those states in the upper Midwest, uh, those would help him make up the difference compared uh, to what Clinton received in 2016. Uh, he also has other options such as in Arizona. 
uh, which looks more competitive this year than it did in the past. So it is a really critical state for Trump. Um, you know, at the same time, uh, Biden is competing there. Uh, there are high-profile donors like Michael Bloomberg putting a lot of money behind Biden in the state because if Biden is able to win there, it really makes his path to victory easier. Actually, that brings me into an interesting area, Scott. I understand that there has been a change in legislation since the last election in Florida that will allow ex-cons to vote in the election. And I understand that Bloomberg has been using his uh, financial might to support that in some way. Well, I'm less familiar with Bloomberg's efforts on that particular element. Um, it really is uh, just a, yet another wild card in Florida. Uh, there, there are so many <laughs> plates in the air, really, in terms of understanding what's going on in Florida. And we really don't get a clear sense of what happened there until after all the votes are counted. Um, you know, one challenge. Uh, well, what's you know, the story with, with the what's the story with the the felons then? Because in Ireland, convicts who are serving time in prison are allowed to vote. That isn't the case in most of America. Is that correct? That's right. So many states have passed laws where if you're convicted of a felony, you know, which in, in the U.S. is a crime that uh, usually has uh, is associated with more than one year in prison, um, that uh, you are revoked your voting rights. Now, there's been movements in many states uh, to uh, remove those restrictions. Um, and and many states have done that. Uh, in Florida, it's been a it's been a, a long slog there. So what we really ha are, are getting new information about what happens when, you know, this occurs. Typically, uh, when you're thinking about um, people that haven't been involved in the political process, these are the kinds of groups you would expect to turn out at pretty low rates in an election. Uh, you know, the voting is often habitual. You vote one year, you vote the next year, you sort of build up a habit. If you haven't, if it's difficult to do, if you have to go through hoops in order to uh, accomplish that and 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 get registered to vote and such, um, that can be, uh, you know, make it more difficult and, and less likely that you'll turn out. But, you know, what's important in those processes are mobilization efforts, the kind of programs that you mentioned uh, that are specifically targeted toward uh, helping groups overcome those uh, those paperwork challenges. But these really. are really significant numbers of people. I mean, Florida is a very populated state. We're talking about up to a million people who are former felons that could be allowed to vote. Or are they actually officially allowed to vote in this election? I mean, if every if every if every member of that group voted, you know, in these tight elections, there, there's sure there, there's plenty of room to make a difference. Of course, um, I think that is definitely true. I think that's what's so challenging in Florida as well is that, um, you know, there are lots of groups that uh, turn out at higher or lower rates in a given election. One of the things that you picked up in your polling in Florida, Scott, is that men in particular who don't have college degrees tend to vote for Trump. That's um, a phenomenon which we see reflected across the United States. Can you try and break that down for us, that, that, that uh, piece of polling? Why do men who don't have tertiary education, why do they prefer Trump? Um, well, it really does go back to the 2016 election. It's a pattern we saw 
both among men and women with, uh, without uh, four-year college degrees, but uh, particularly among uh, men. And um, I think it's complicated. I think it has to do with a, a sort of basic reaction that people have had to Trump's personality. Uh, people with more formal education have responded to Trump, uh, recoiled from Trump uh, in different ways, in, in a sharper way than they have from previous Republican candidates. These were all, this was a, always a slightly more democratic group than uh, those without college degrees, but it really, the gap really expanded with Trump. Um, and, uh, you know, the other, other element is that Trump has, has, has tried to speak to uh, voters who feel disenfranchised by the political system, disenfranchised by past political leaders. Um, this is something that, uh, you know, is, is a conversation among Republican strategists as well, that, you know, have they, uh, has the party been uh, catered too much to the interests of uh, businesses uh, over individuals? Um, and the other element, too, is uh, there's, there's economic appeals, and then there's also cultural appeals and cultural conservative appeals uh, that have made more headway among um, non-college white voters. Scott Clement is the polling director for the Washington Post. Thank you so much, Scott. Race to the White House on News Talk. Right, let's wind back the clock. It's time for our weekly segment from the archives. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Many commentators fear that election 2020 may end up imitating the ambiguous result of the contest in 2000, when the outcome came down to a Supreme Court decision and a mere 537 votes separating the candidates. The 2000 race for the White House saw an intense battle between outgoing Democratic Vice President Al Gore versus the Governor of Texas, George Bush. With the results neck and neck on election night, it all came down to the swing state of Florida. At first, news channels called the state for Al Gore. Stay with us, we're about to take you on an exciting and bumpy ride. We're gonna uh, now project an important win for Vice President Al Gore. NBC News projects that he wins the 25 electoral votes in the state of Florida. It turns out that Governor Jeb Bush was not his brother's keeper. But then, the first twist in the story arrived when just a short time later, it was decided that actually, maybe we called it for Gore a little too hastily. What the networks give us, the networks taketh away. NBC News is now taking Florida out of Vice President Gore's column and putting it back in the too close to call column. Uh, that has been the position of uh, Governor Bush throughout the evening and his chief strategist Carl Rove to say nothing of his brother, Jeb Bush, who is the governor of the state of Florida. We're told that just a few moments ago that Jeb Bush told his dad, former President Bush, that we won't know about Florida until at least midnight, between midnight and 1 a.m. Several hours later, the networks flipped once again and Florida was called for Bush. Gore telephoned Bush to concede defeat and then hopped in his motorcade to face his disappointed supporters. But mid-transit, the story took yet another turn as the vice president's aides decided that perhaps it was too close to call and maybe it was too soon to concede. Gore telephoned Bush once again, retracting his concession. The ensuing conversation is the stuff of legend, with a startled Bush exclaiming, You mean to tell me, Mr. Vice President, you're retracting your concession? Bush pleaded that his little brother, Jeb Bush, 
who just happened to be the governor of Florida, talk about political dynasties, had told him he had won the state. Gore replied, you don't have to be snippy about it. Let me explain something. Your younger brother is not the ultimate authority on this. Recounts were held, the gap narrowed even further between the candidates, balloting methods came under scrutiny, were the hole punches on polling cards consistent, was every vote properly counted? Basically, it was a big fat cluster shambles, not dissimilar to what is feared may happen in the 2020 cycle. In the final tally, Bush was just 537 votes ahead of Gore, well inside the margin of error. Gore demanded more recounts, but the Supreme Court voted 5-4 against further intervention. Therefore, the election was handed to George W. Bush. With the outcome of the presidential election not finalised for longer than any of us could ever imagine, Vice President Gore and I put our hearts and hopes into our campaigns. We both gave it our all. We shared similar emotions. So I understand how difficult this moment must be for Vice President Gore and his family. I have a lot to be thankful for tonight. I'm thankful for America and thankful that we are able to resolve our electoral differences in a peaceful way. I'm thankful to the American people for the great privilege of being able to serve as your next president. In 2000, it took 35 days after election night for the world to know who the next president was going to be. During the intervening two decades, we have gotten used to a very fast turnaround on election night, but with a huge increase in mail-in balloting and Trump's threats regarding the outcome, one wonders just how long we will have to wait this year. As a dual citizen of both the United States and Ireland, my next guest is in a very unique position to offer insight on the 2020 election. Catherine Zappone is the former Minister for Children, of course, in our last government here in Ireland. But for the past few months, she's been working on grassroots campaigns for the Democrats stateside in preparation for the vote on November the 3rd. Catherine, thank you for joining us on Race to the White House. It's great, great to be with you, Simon. Thank you. Catherine, before I get to the VP debate, which we want to have a chat with and break down, um, as you've been on the ground in the US for several months now, I'm interested to get your thoughts on the vibe uh, of the race so far. How does the atmosphere, the, the feverish twist and turns, how do they compare to other election cycles in your view? Well, Simon, thanks for that question. Honestly, it's like nothing that has ever happened before. And certainly uh, in relation to the presidential debate, um, most people across America, whether you are for Biden or Trump, I think found it very difficult to watch, uh, felt embarrassed that that was the kind of political image that was being projected to the world in terms of what's going on here and the ways in which the current um, administration has really attempted to pick apart our democratic foundations, Simon. And you know, as, as you say, you know, for, for, um, I am a dual citizen four years ago uh, at the U.S. Embassy watch party in Dublin when Hillary Clinton failed to break through the ultimate glass ceiling. And it's, of course, it's a, a night that's haunted me and so many others. I had declared my public support for her. I had voted for her. But this time I knew that voting would not be enough. And it, a, lot of, a lot of it had to do with because of the, you know, as things came, emerged from that period, uh, Russian interference, et cetera, which is still, which is currently 
going on. I think our, you know, people in Ireland would be aware of that. But at the same time, so many other things that are really ripping apart um, the, uh, I think, the American democracy. In terms of the debate last night, um, first of all, for me, I thought it was a masterful study in how not to answer the question. There was was a number of occasions where both candidates just flagrantly avoided the question. uh, And I'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, what struck me about the debate, um, indeed last night's debate and the presidential debate the week before, is how the tone of the Democrats is very different to the tone of the Republicans. What the Democrat, what Harris and Biden seem to be saying is it's a lot of things are very negative. So firstly, America is in a bad place. The economy is in a state of devastation. COVID is to be feared, which of course it is. And a vaccine is a long way off. Whereas Pence and Trump, everything that they're saying is expressing optimism. A vaccine is around the corner. Numbers of deaths are going down. The economy is going to bounce back. Now, whether you believe those things are not. I'm talking about tone and how the American people receives the message. And from as an outsider, I see one side projecting a very negative image of America, the Democrats, and the other pro- projecting a very positive image of America. How would you respond to that? Well, I think that's a very interesting point, Simon, and I do understand how you may perceive it that way. Um, we certainly uh, would say, I would say, you know, that the the Republicans and the way they're putting across their messages is they, they really are living in an alternative universe than what's happening on the ground and for the American people. And the way in which they uh, message that uh, optimism uh, in terms of uh, what they've done, uh, not they don't have much many plans in terms of what they can do, but the way that they message that is effectively offer the American people untruths. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and um, Pence did that again last evening. And even though uh, he was, um, you know, he's, a, he's an accomplished debater, soft-spoken man, uh, you know, that when, when, when a lie is told, it's still a lie, even if it's done in a respectful fashion and in a soft tone. So, you know, whereas the, I think, you know, the Democrats, Joe, both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris with her own unique, extraordinary, um, I think, way of of being. Um, I think that she has a, a, a sense of joy in her that the American people like to feel touched by and that, that she is just calling out the facts. And, and, you know, and as you know, that all of these debates and uh, are, are fact checked and there's a whole lot for untruths sure. being spoken, <clears throat> excuse me, clearly blatant lies um, on the, the Republican side. But on the, on the Democratic side, the facts are hard. Uh, and but that's what the people are experiencing. And, and you know, and, and so, for example, when she turned and looked straight at the American people and said, look, if you can't put your food on your table now because of the way the president would not share with the American people as soon as he knew the deadliness of this virus, I mean, that people can hear that. I mean, I, I you know, people are queuing in lines to 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 to, to, um, to try to find food banks, and they never expected to have okay. to do that before. Sure. Uh, when I was in Seattle, my family were out, you know, bringing parcels uh, to families who would never have anticipated that. So it that's what I would say to what you. Extraordinary about. times. Um, yes. Now there is one question, Catherine, which both candidates flat out refused to answer. It was quite extraordinary 
watching it because in presidential debates, vice presidential debates in the past, they used to um, write the question on the screen so that if yes. you were just tuning in, you could see what the candidates were responding to. They don't do that anymore and possibly for good reason because they literally took the question and then talked about something completely different. The question was, both of your superiors are elderly gentlemen and what happens if they fall ill or um, they're not able to carry out their uh, their jobs anymore? Um, is there a plan in place in the situation where you would have to take over as president? Why do you think Kamala and Mike are so reticent to answer that question? Well, what I will say is I, I agree with you that certainly uh, the vice president uh, you know, just really didn't go there. Uh, and it's unclear uh, as to why he uh, batted that one back, except maybe to go back to some of the other messages that he just wanted to trot about out about other things. But I, I think whereas it, you know, and you're, you were very carefully viewing it as well there, Simon, is that whereas Kamala may not have answered it uh, as directly as the question was asked, what she did was is that she used it as an opportunity to really outline, I think, her own background, her own experience, who she is, what she's done. Uh, and one of the big pieces I had as a checklist for going into this debate was that will people know more about uh, you know who Kamala Harris is, and and I think she excelled in that regard. And so implicitly um, indicating that should it's should it be necessary uh, for a transition to happen uh, if 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 Biden is elected um, and 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 she needs to step in, that she is prepared to lead. Okay. Um. Finally, because the clock is is working against us, but I'm interested in your unique position as both an Irish and American citizen, which administration do you think would benefit Ireland more? Well, in my mind and many others, I think, Simon, there's no question that it would be a Biden administration. And, um, you know, I had the opportunity just this week to conduct an online conversation with folks in Ireland and also uh, experts here in the United States. And one of the, uh, the guests that I had on was uh, Mary McAleese and our former president. And she she really nailed it, you know, that she said when she talked about the fact that we needed somebody in the White House who understands the Brexit issue, who understands uh, what's going on both within Europe, um, but, but particularly Ireland's unique position within Europe. And we also need somebody who is a leader uh, in terms of human rights. He has that in his DNA. He knows what's the difference between right and wrong. He has extraordinary foreign policy experience. And Joe Biden is the man for that. And um, so, again, clearly, as we know, he's got roots in Ireland. He, he, he celebrates that. But it's not just that. He understands what's going on here, what we need to move forward, particularly in light of what's going on with Europe right now. So there's no question that Joe has our back. Um, and I am, you know, what can I just say, too? I mean, I think that, you know, Kamala Harris uh, was the cl clear winner last evening. That was what the American people polled. That was their judgment, too. She rose to the occasion and she outlined her credentials and the ways in which a Biden presidency can unite America and also really make us proud again uh, on the world stage. Catherine, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for joining us on Race to the White House. Catherine Zappone, thank you. Thank you. 
Race to the White House with Simon Tierney on News Talk. Welcome back to Race to the White House with me, Simon Tierney, here on News Talk. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at Tierney Simon. But first, I need to make a phone call. Thank you for calling the White House. News Talk's Shane Hannan joins us for his weekly slot on the show, Thank You for Calling the White House, in which he brings us behind the scenes of one of the most iconic buildings in the United States, the White House. Now, Shane, the White House is famous for its state banquets, of course, filled with pomp and ceremony, the finest chefs on hand. But I'm not terribly surprised to discover that the current incumbent is keener on Big Macs. <laughs> yeah, when we started this research, I guess, for state banquets in the White House, you're thinking of words like lavish and uh, proper foods like caviar and, and, and really exotic uh, foods in, in, in the, the state banquet room in Washington, D.C. But yeah, Trump's is a little uh, is a little less lavish, I think. He's uh, he's someone who, who they say he did a, a physical, Simon, back in uh, January of 2019. They said he's in excellent health, but he is just a single pound below uh, the guidelines that say the person is obese. Uh, but this is issued by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And when you see his diet, you probably realize why he's just under a pound under obese because he avoids breakfast if he can. Uh, he spoke to Fox News a few years ago and said he'll avoid breakfast all day long. Uh, very happy to do that. But when he does have breakfast, he'll eat either bacon or eggs, cereal or a McDonald's McMuffin. So he doesn't drink coffee or tea. Um, but his food habits fairly well known and fairly well publicized at this stage. Uh, Wait, he doesn't days, drink coffee or tea? He doesn't drink coffee or tea, which is which is surprising, uh, considering the amount of work presidents have to do, and, and most of us have to get I, through. I have this weird thing, I, I and I know this is not fair and it's illogical, but I have a kind of a a completely irrational um, suspicion of people who don't drink tea or coffee. <laughs> totally yeah. unfair, I know, but uh, yeah. Anyway, now to be fair, he gets his he gets his caffeine from other places. Simon, he's he's apparently a big fan of diet coke. Reportedly, drinks twelve cans a day. Uh, doesn't drink alcohol, uh, big fan of Doritos and crisps like that. Also a big pizza fan, but he, he doesn't eat the crust, uh, we're told. But you mentioned McDonald's. It's 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 borderline obsession. He, he gets it delivered uh, into the White House for him. And, and uh, different uh, aides, Corey Lewandowski, one of those aides speaking uh, in an interview said, his order at McDonald's is two Big Macs, two filet fish sandwiches, a small chocolate shake. That's a total of, of just under 2,500 calories, which is your average daily amount uh, guideline for an adult male. So he's already doing that in one McDonald's meal. But an obsession is quite uh, pertinent, a word, I think, to use. But and tell me it, why why it's not just the fact that he likes McDonald's or fast food. There's something no. else. There's something else going on here, isn't there? Yeah, he, he, he kind of talks about it from a safety uh, perspective. So uh, he was quoted by uh, CNN one time saying, you know, one bad, one bad hamburger, you can destroy McDonald's. One bad hamburger, you can take Wendy's and all these other places and they're out of business. So he's obsessed with cleanliness and he feels when you go to a place like McDonald's, you're going to get exactly what you want. You know what you're getting, no matter what McDonald's you're in, in America or across the world. So he likes this knowledge of knowing what he's going to be eating. And, you know, some some aides have said he goes certain days, 14 to 16 hours without eating anything at all. Uh, but when he does, clearly McDonald's is high up his list. It kind of, of feeds into his, um, apparently when he first became president, 
he he wasn't a fan of the idea that as president he was going to have to travel to other countries <laughs> because he doesn't like you know not being in his own gaff. That's why he kept going back to Mar-a-Lago in the first two years mm. of his presidency, and he doesn't like you know not having American food. Apparently, it kind of ties into that narrative, doesn't it? It does. And like you you think of Americans love their condiments and 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 sauces, and he is borderline obsessed with with ketchup. So. When he's not eating the likes of fried chicken and burgers, he he loves a steak. Very well done, we're told, and served with ketchup. And he, he does the same on McDonald's. He's obsessed with ketchup. But, I mean, he, he can't get away from it. He tried to <laughs> so, get the... Sorry, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So, it, basically, what you're telling me, Shane, is that the president has the diet of a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> when I read this, I was like, he, he's just missing chicken dippers, essentially. <laughs> he's just, like, he he's a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary diet, and... How he's still alive at 74 when you see his food uh, intake is, is quite extraordinary. I have look, this image in my head now of him um, eating Mac- McDonald's, drinking his Coke and, you know, flinging chicken dippers at the TV when someone says something that is critical of him. Yeah, look, it's it's not far off, but he like I, I'm sure he, he does a little bit of exercise and watches what he eats at, at certain periods as well. So he can't be living. It's not like Super Size Me where he's living off a diet of McDonald's day in, day out, but... By the sound of things, it's uh, it's not far off. Okay, now, like, take me back to a more glamorous time, Shane. Tell me about the first time that an Irish president visited the White House. Mm. This this probably uh, deserves a little bit of context. So this was the president, Sean T. O'Kelly, visiting uh, the Eisenhower administration's White House, uh, St. Patrick's Day in 1959. So we have to go a fair bit back. But it, there wasn't great relations between Ireland and America at this point. You have to remember, this is uh, just after World War II or 14 years after World War II. America probably not too pleased with Ireland's stance of neutrality and, and de Valera's letter of condolence on the, on the passing of Adolf Hitler uh, to the Germans. But... This this visit by Sean T. O'Kelly seemed to mend a lot of that mistrust. Uh, you wanted glamour, you wanted glitz, Simon, and I guess the menu from that one is as far away from uh, Donald Trump's Mickey D's as you can possibly get. So uh, the menu for this one, there are books that have that have covered this menu, and, and we can actually read into what the what they ate: Mamie Eisenhower and Dwight Eisenhower and Sean T. O'Kelly and all the Irish dignitaries that were there. So the evening started with prosciutto, ham, and melon. You had volivants, cucumber sandwiches. Cream of watercress soup with Melba toast, celery hearts, olives, uh, lobster Newburgh, which was a very popular dish at the time, I'm told. Uh, and then the main main course, again, exotic, Long Island duckling with apple sauce. You had a casserole of aubergine, French string beans, a green salad, of course, a nod to the Irish guests, I'm sure, uh, with anchovy and cheese crusts. And then for dessert, your American classic, which Trump would probably uh, approve of, an ice cream sundae with nuts and bonbons. And uh, the bottle of wine then was Paul Roger, 1952, which apparently, if you have at the moment, you can uh, probably sell for around 500 quid. So uh, quite an exotic dinner, that one in 1959, and far cry from Trump's administration. This would have been a huge trip for the Irish government at that time. 1959, the state, uh, well, we'd only been a republic uh, just over 10 years. I mean, this was a huge opportunity to sell the Irish brand in America, I guess. Mm. And and there were incidents of, of protests outside John T. O'Kelly's um, uh, hotel where he was staying and in, on different legs of this US trip. There were uh, different arguments going on over comments he made about the IRA and and uh, I guess surefire Republicans camping outside his hotels protesting at things that he had said. And then you had American journalists asking John T. O'Kelly 
political questions, uh, which, of course, the Irish president doesn't get involved in politics to this day. So he had to kindly reply to them that he wasn't going to get involved. But you had uh, in Chicago, the press have headlines like make way for Sean T. O'Kelly, a little man with a big heart who spent his youth twisting the tail of the British lion and welcoming this, quote, little giant of Aaron. He was only five foot four, Sean T. O'Kelly. But he, he, he went across to this this trip and really, really mended uh, relations between Ireland and America after World War II. And, and Dwight Eisenhower, I mean, one uh, press uh, report of that visit said he flirted with Mamie Eisenhower, charmed his host with Irish jokes, which Eisenhower told around Washington for weeks. So clearly the, the jokes he told around that very posh dinner yeah. uh, left an impression on Dwight. What better way to help diplomatic ties flourish than, than <laughs> over a fancy meal? Um, now, there is one other thing that I'm interested in. I remember when Michelle Obama was promoting her memoir there about a year or so ago. Mm. She did talk about surprising bit of information about who actually pays for the food in the White House. Can you illuminate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, this was quite surprising for some people, I guess. But what people don't realize that, you know, despite making a, a six figure salary, the president is still responsible for paying for all meals at the White House and elsewhere, all events, the wages for people working in those events and even transportation as well. So uh, many presidents have actually left the White House in serious debt. There, there's figures quoted around for Bill Clinton uh, that his debt totaled between $2.28 million and $10.6 million dollars by the time he left office. Now, of course, you you get that back in book sales and everything else that you do once you leave the White House. But uh, the the Michelle Obama comments you spoke about, she was on on Jimmy Kimmel um, a few years ago, and she relayed a story from her book, Becoming, uh, that the Obamas paid for their own food. Uh, And she said, you know, the White House staff will let you get whatever you want while you're living there. So if you want to buy some exotic fruit, for example, they'll gladly oblige. But she says, then you get the bill for a peach, and you're like, that was a $500 peach. So... (laughs) <laughs> it's 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 an expensive uh, living. Obviously, the state banquets are paid for by the state, but uh, whatever other food they want uh, certainly has to be paid for. And, and so, wait Obama, now. so what you're saying is that in the private residence within the White House, when they're eating their own meals as a family, the the first family, that they have to pay for that food themselves. Exactly. And and Michelle Obama, anytime she's been quoted and asked about this. She, she really uh, highlights the fact, you know, don't feel sorry for us. We had free lodgings. We stayed in, in, a, in a massive gaff, a mansion in Washington, D.C., uh, free rent, uh, free transportation as well, free security, all of all that came with uh, being president and first lady. But, yeah, the, the, the food that itself, I, I'd, like there's no indications exactly what it uh, adds up to over the four years. But you can imagine what, what it would add up to. It's, sure. I'm sure, quite a significant amount of money. But uh, Michelle Obama, one of those uh, first ladies obsessed in a good way with nutrition. And, and you know, even her, her personal uh, chefs uh, really, really spoke about the need for nutrition. And look, when you look at the obesity rates in America, uh, it's, it, it can only be a good thing that she did that. And then Donald Trump came in and started ordering <laughs> McDonald's <all>. every night. <laughs> oh, God, what a legacy. Um, Shane Hannon, News Talk's Shane Hannon, thank you so much for joining us. And you'll be back again next week. Thanks, Simon. That's our lot for this week. Do subscribe to the podcast on the News Talk app on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you can get your podcasts. My thanks to producer Simon Keane. Join us next week as we continue our countdown of Race to the White House.